Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. We still don't have any new reviews on Apple Podcasts, so please um, stop making me feel like I'm repeatedly texting someone asking if they want to hang out and they're just not responding to me. Please stop ghosting me. Drop us a review. They really make my day. On a less sad note, though, today I have the joy of talking to Gabby Fleury, who is a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who is developing a carnivore livestock conflict mitigation project in collaboration with local NGO Cheetah Conservation Botswana and Botswana Predator Conservation. Gabby, whose pronouns are they, them, is a Fulbright scholar, a member of Forbes 30 Under 30 in Science, and a member of the Organizing Committee for Black Mammalogists Week. We're going to be talking about human-wildlife conflict, being Black in STEM, uh, using local dogs to work on conservation issues rather than importing dogs, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. I had a great time connecting with Gabby and... um, it's it, yeah, it was a real pleasure to get to talk to them and learn a bunch from them. But before we get into it, first we're going to dive into our science highlight. So I was super excited um, a couple weeks ago to see this article pop up in my Google Scholar Alerts that is titled "Comparing Narcotics Detection Canine Accuracy Across Breeds." It was published by Brian Lee Rice and Joseph Velasco in Cells Helian in um, summer 2023. And again, even though this is on narcotics dogs, I was stoked because I was really excited to see what this um, detection canine accuracy may vary looking um, across breeds. You know, I work with Border Collies. They're not considered a typical detection dog. People ask me all the time why we don't work with Beagles. My next dog, I'm deeply considering getting a Spaniel, maybe a Lab if I have enough room for a dog that big, Um, you know, or it could just be another shelter bot. So, super excited about this, but before I even finished the abstract, I was pretty bummed out. It turns out that when the paper says, when the title says across breeds, what they meant was 25 Belgian Malinois and nine German Shepherds, um, which you may recognize as two breeds that are very, very similar phenotypically, genetically. Um, yeah, they're pretty closely related breeds. They're both shepherds that no longer are really used for herding and are much more kind of police uh and military bred, and, you know, the Malinois came from the German Shepherd, or, you know, yeah, they're just, they're very, very closely related, and, uh, yeah, so we're not going to answer any questions about beagles versus spaniels or labs versus border collies with this paper, unfortunately. We're really just kind of looking at two very closely related breeds. Um, It's just so hard 
to say much when you're trying to compare two breeds that are so similar and often crossbred. I would honestly be kind of interested if they had done, and as far as I could tell, they did not, done genetic tests on these dogs to see what proportion of the other breed may or may not be in there, because I know in a lot of police kennels that um, sort of crossbreeding is not uncommon. So the researchers basically had these drug dogs search rooms with one planted drug per room and compared the dog's number of correct alerts, false alerts, and misses. The handlers were searching blind, but were able to employ their own strategy. They didn't mention a timeline. Um, they found that 11% of the German Shepherds made a false alert versus 4% of the Malinois. Um, although we do also have to remember that there was only nine German Shepherds, so if there was one German Shepherd, that was kind of throwing the team off. Uh <laughs> We can't necessarily, yeah, the, the stats get a little messy there. Um, the German Shepherds found 100% of the targets, while the Malinois found 98% of the targets. Given the sample sizes, those differences were not significant. Um, and anyway, the long story short here, I'm not really sure if there's anything in this paper that's useful as far as breed selection for detection work. I'm, I guess I'm glad that they did the research, but it just didn't feel like anything that we could really apply. I suppose if they had found uh, significant differences, that would have been really interesting and quite surprising. Um, but I'm mostly quibbling with the title here. It's a pretty misleading title. But without further ado, let's go get to our interview with Gabby Flurry. Hi all, Rachel here from Canine Conservationists. One of the ways you can support Canine Conservationists is by checking out our online store. At canineconservationist.org shop, you can find hats, stickers, pet food mats, reusable grocery bags, mugs, and all sorts of shirts and jackets. I have one of the hoodies, and I think it's so comfortable and cozy. I also really love the pride stickers. If you really don't need anything new, you can also make a tax-deductible donation to Canine Conservationists at canineconservationists.org slash support dash our dash work. All right, so um, welcome to the podcast, Gabby. I'm super excited to finally get to talk to you. We've been working on trying to make our schedules mesh for an embarrassingly <laughs> long time. Um, why don't you start out with telling us a little bit about um, like, take us back to you as a kid. How do you get into the world of ecology? Was this something you always wanted to do? Yes. Yeah, Just like a little brief introduction. Um, so I'm a conservation biologist mm -hmm. who works mostly on carnivore livestock mitigation. So I call myself an interspecies diplomat. I kind of work in the in the space between people, people and, and, and wildlife. Um, and that kind of is a mix of all kinds of things from behavioral science, both on the human side and on the animal side, to looking at wildlife ecology, to looking at one health, to looking at, you know, psychology and political ecology and history and culture. So it's kind of like my field is like 12 fields had a baby. And then those fields were, you know, that field was then babysat by a bunch of other fields. So I kind of do all the things. Um, but there is no primer on how to do that as a career, right? So it's always a really interesting question when people ask me, how did you get into conservation? Because I literally have no conscious memory when I wasn't wanting to be a conservationist. I just didn't know what that word was. Um, so I was always interested in wildlife. Mm -hmm. So my dad is of Angolan descent. Um, he's Brazilian Angolan. Um, so I was always really interested in like Southern African conservation. Um, my mom always jokes I saw the Lion King one too many times. Um, I am a child of the 90s. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, but yeah, so I was always really interested in wildlife, really interested in wild places. Um, 
And it's, it's always interesting for me to think about because when I was a little kid growing up watching documentaries, I never saw any people in those documentaries. And my entire job is working with people. <laughs> and that's actually, you know, like I'm a people person. That's what I love to do. Um, but it's really interesting because what I thought the job I would have when I was five <laughs> is very different than the job that I have now. Um, but yeah, so I was always really interested in protecting wildlife and very fascinated by animal facts. And um, I'm an osteosarcoma survivor, so a bone cancer survivor. So a lot of people say that they got into nature because they were out playing in puddles and in the forests and things like that. Um, I was born in Boston, so I was born in a very urban environment. Um, and I literally couldn't physically run until I was about 10. Um, so I missed a lot of that getting my hands in the dirt. So what I did is I actually learned from, from books and from films, and I um, spent three years in the hospital reading animal textbooks <laughs> and Ranger Rick comics and all these kind of things. Um, so yeah, so I fell in love with it kind of from that way and then finally got to touch grass, so to speak, and become a conservationist after that. But that was actually one of the reasons why I was so passionate about getting better is because I actually, and I'll be honest about this, mm -hmm. I, I wear a physical aid, so I have a brace in the field. Um, mm -hmm a leg brace um, because my left leg is mostly reconstructed below the knee. So as, as a physical mm -hmm. disability, when I was a kid, wanting to be a conservationist and knowing I needed to be fit and be able to be in the field actually was a huge motivator to go through 15 years of physical therapy to be able to do that. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. And now I get to do that. So um, it doesn't impede me in the field at all. It's just a physical aid. Um, but I'm proud to say mm -hmm. that I don't know if I'd be walking again if I wasn't a conservationist. Um, so that's a really kind of fun. Wow. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. You know, I, like, I did an okay job of uh, researching before this interview, but that's, yeah, that's incredible. And I mean, I'm so glad that you had something that were, you were able to focus on and look forward to. Um, cause that my younger sister was very sick for a lot of our childhood. Um, and, you know, having that driving force to learn how to walk again and to go through all of, you know, everything associated with that was so, so, so important for her. And, you know, she's now in medical school. That's, that's the way that she ended up going. But yeah, it's, that's, that's an incredible. And I'm sorry you had to go through that as well. That sounds like a very tough childhood. Yeah. But also um, it led to so many amazing things. I mean, I, it, so, that's, yeah. so that was a really good part of that. And it also having kind of those differences growing up made me kind of, I think, develop a lot of empathy towards differences mm -hmm. um, and just kind of trying to to learn how to interact with a lot of different people who may be very different from me, whether that's a background or all these different differences between different people. Um, and a lot of my work sometimes feels like being more like a UN ambassador than a conservationist. So I think a lot of having yeah. to to learn how to navigate differences has been really important because there's also trying to find those similarities, right? Bringing people into the one thing that they can all agree on. Um, and I got really good, good at that through some of my challenges. So it's been good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. So where did you, so you got to go outside, you got to start playing in the grass, you just got to start living out the Ranger Rick dreams. <laughs> um, and then where did you, directly go off to undergrad thinking you were like majoring in ecology or conservation biology or, you know, one of the fields that fits right in that um, umbrella. And then from there, where yeah, did you end up? So I was a geographic science major, so geography. Um, and mm -hmm. then my minor was actually oh. in theater because I actually was quite shy. 
So I wanted to learn how to <laughs> better do public speaking and to do improv because because it scared me, right? So being able to uh -huh. have that as kind of another thing for me to learn has been really helpful in my career. So I was doing all the STEM coursework and then doing improv classes. Um, so that combination was really cool. Um, so I did my undergrad at a school in Virginia called James Madison University. Um, and then I wasn't planning to go directly into grad school, but because I co come from a relatively low income background, I, can't, I couldn't afford a master's without a scholarship. And I got a full one yeah. through a uh, Rotary Foundation, through the International Rotary Foundation, where I was actually oh, able cool. to make a case uh -huh. for the first time ever in my district about the direct link between environmental health and human health. Um, and uh -huh. I was, I think, one of the only non-political science people that they've ever had in my district, and definitely the first conservationist. So because of that, I actually got a full ride to grad school um, in South Africa. So I ended wow. up going directly. I think uh -huh. I had three months off. I'm playing in South Africa right after um, my undergrad graduation. So I did like a short stint with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife for an internship, a paid internship, and then immediately got on a plane. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of fun. So I did my master's degree at the University of Cape Town uh, through the Fitzgerald Institute, uh -huh. Institute, which is an interdisciplinary institute. They say it's ornithology, but it's a bunch of different people. Um, and I did yeah. uh, my master's degree researching some of these social cultural changes after apartheid um, in the north of South uh -huh. Africa, um, looking at how changes in cultural shifts and people returning back after apartheid ended um, changed herding practices and that changed grazing practices and that changed uh, vegetation uh, communities. So that was my master's. Wow. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And I mean... <sighs> Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. So I'm hoping to be going to El Salvador to do some research on carnivore movement and ecology through my PhD, and where these places where the socio political cultural aspects and you know really traumatic history of these countries influences the behavior of these animals and you know colonization and farming and all of these things, it's so complicated. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to get to talk to you is that you are someone who looks so directly at all of these different parts. Um, because I think that's something that as conservationists um, can often be a bit of a blind spot. Not, not always a lot of, like, I feel like the more people I talk to, the more I'm finding people who are, who are trying to look at everything, but it's, it, I don't think it, is a given, especially when you're like a baby conservationist. So there's so school. much to learn, right? And I think I think that's kind of one of the mm -hmm. reasons that it's so important to one of the biggest things I learned in my career. So I did my undergraduate thesis on lion livestock conflict in Kenya. And I remember uh -huh. I was 20. It was my first time doing any of this. And I remember just kind of being completely shocked because this one guy who's a who's a Kenyan conservationist, you know, he said, Okay, but if you Americans know everything, where is your megafauna? And I'm like, okay, like decent, <laughs> decent point, right? Like that actually makes a lot of sense. And then yeah. it kind of made me understand, you know, like it's so crucial to approach problems with both confidence and humility. It's like, you know what you know, but also mm -hmm. understand that when you're coming into a system that's not your own, they are the experts. The people that live there are the experts about the place and, and how things work. And it's really important to form these really strong partnerships where they can help guide some of your questions. Because if you come in assumptions, mm -hmm. sometimes you're solving a problem that actually isn't the biggest problem um, and isn't the most helpful right. problem or isn't being done in a sustainable way or a way that can be accessed by people. Um, so the question mm -hmm. becomes, are you doing your research 
for you to just get a degree or do you want it to actually do some good when you're gone? Um, so that's something that tries to, I try to let it guide my work um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's probably the most important message that we're going to get out of this, this you know, this little series of episodes we're doing on, you know, how to responsibly conduct, you know, not just international field work, but also just anytime you're going into another community. I was just at a bonfire with my my lab last night talking about, and there was a conversation going around about people who had done field work in the deep south and the southeast, you know, and we're in, we're in Corvallis, Oregon, and people talking about, you know, some of the cultural um, issues and safety issues for some of them, if you're non-binary or, uh, you know, a person of color, but also figuring out how to as some, you know, an academic from Oregon <laughs> come into, you know, an area outside of Chattanooga and be effective and, you know, not just focus on the salamanders, but also, you know, the, the situation around the salamanders. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people get so. into wildlife because we like wildlife, not necessarily that we <laughs> necessarily want to hang out with a bunch of different people, right? Um, so it's something that a lot of yeah. us have to, have to kind of learn. Um, and I think the most important thing that anyone can do, especially if you're an early career conservationist is to understand your own positionality. It's like, where do you come from? Mm -hmm. What are you about? And how can that maybe affect how you see things? And also to understand that conservationists, we're not neutral parties in any kind of, especially in conflict yeah. work. Um, we have our own agendas. We have our own biases. Um, mm -hmm. So understanding for yourself what those are can help kind of guide that in terms of trying to, you know, figure out a way to overcome those biases to try to meet people where they are um, and to create, you know, mutually beneficial solutions. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So for you, you know, you said that growing up with cancer, um, you know, and going through all of that physical therapy really helped you understand where people are coming from and learn to relate to people. How did being a person of color affect, you know, your career trajectory, whether that's in school or relating to people outside of school? Um, was it helpful in South Africa <laughs> <laughs> or not? <laughs> it's, it's been interesting, I guess. It's kind of the coded answer to that. Um, so just to be clear, yeah. my, my dad's black, my mom's white. Um, I'm also a little indigenous uh -huh. as well. Um, so as kind of a, a, as, as a, as a mixed person, as a biracial person, multiracial mm -hmm. person, um, it's, it's interesting because it's like, I've, I've kind of grown up as someone who is also both a Brazilian and a U.S. national, um, seeing things kind of from the outside, you know, so like I don't feel mm -hmm. fully American or fully Brazilian, um, and growing into conservation as a person of color in some ways, I think. Again, it's kind of like having kind of like many different identities as part of my identity, having that intersectionality is very powerful mm -hmm. and helps me relate to and have empathy for a lot of different people. Um, but at the same time, sometimes conservation can be difficult because you may be the only person in the room who is a person of color. Um, and that can be challenging. Um, I think a big challenging thing with my career is trying to kind of remind people that I'm a, not a DEI specialist. I may be passionate about it, care about it in yeah. my work. Um, I may have a personal stake in things being anti-racist apart from just, I, I like my life to be <laughs> easier as well. Um, but also totally. I think there is a tendency to sometimes put more focus on DI work for scientists of color, for example, than on their own research. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really interesting a couple mm -hmm. of years ago when I was realizing that I was getting more speaking gigs 
for DEI stuff than for conservation stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not a DEI expert. I just, I live in this world and I can only speak from my own perspective. Like, well, that's a really, it's yeah. been an interesting thing. And I think conservation, because of how, especially conservation in the United States, because of how it's kind of like come out in terms of, you know, like it is, it was very exclusionary for a very long time. Um, and we're just mm-hmm. starting to try to open it up again or not again, open it up. Um, but then there's challenges yeah. like um, people even knowing that you can be a conservationist. So my dad is an immigrant. Um, mm-hmm. My dad did not necessarily want me to be a conservationist. Um, he it's, mm-hmm. it's doctor or engineer, right? So having to, and he's fine with it now. Sometimes he jokes, I'm going to be the wrong doctor, yeah. but yeah, he's um, right. But yeah. it's just kind of one of those things of like, um, one of the funniest things he ever said to me was on a plane where he's like, what if they ask for a doctor? Like, what can you do? You're going to identify that he's not a lion. And I'm like, yeah, like I can tell if this, like, I'm not a heart attack, I can tell he's yeah. not a lion. So it's super useful. Um, <sighs> but yeah, so this whole thing of just like, there's a lot of pressures that, that come with being a minority in a space. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, and that's not true for everybody. That's not everyone's experience. If you're in certain programs, it can be a lot easier. Um, but my mm-hmm. experience was that, you know, it's been sometimes I've had to find my communities. Um, and I think things like mm-hmm. science, Twitter and black mammologist week and all those things. Like I finally met people who are, who are like me <laughs> and it's really cool. So there's yeah. kind of like this uh, community that I've built for myself. So even if I'm in a place that, like I go to the University of Wisconsin Madison, which is a great university, but there there aren't many people of color in my department, um, let alone black people. Yeah, Wisconsin's pretty pretty white. I grew I, I grew up in northern Wisconsin. It it's yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pretty pretty white state. Yeah. So, um, but I have this much larger conservation community outside of my department. Um, so yeah. So I think like it's just kind of you find who your people are. You find people who can kind of connect to you, and you can kind of share resources and. Yeah, so it's, but it's not, it's not been a bad thing. Like, I don't, I don't regret, um, obviously, I had no say in the matter, but like, I am, I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of where I come from. Um, I'm proud of, I'm proud of my entire background. I think just one of those things of like, as conservationists, we need to, there's a two pronged thing because you hear a lot about recruitment. You hear about how do we get more people of color into conservation? Uh, which has its own challenges, considering that it's incredibly underpaid and doesn't tend to reward people for their hard work. And it's hard to break in and people drop out all the time in their early career. Um, I just was very lucky Mm -hmm. that I kind of was farther enough in my career that by I I never had that kind of like danger zone because I was always either in school or in a job. But that's not the case for so many people. Um, And I sometimes do think that, you know, if I hadn't gotten that scholarship at that crucial time to get my master's, I might have just dropped out of conservation and gone into a different profession. Mm-hmm. Um, so recruitment is a problem, but at the same time, it's also retention. So if it is kind of yeah. a thing where it's like you are kind of, in most spaces, maybe one of the only people in the room, how do you make those spaces safe for people that they want to say, stay? Um, and how do you make sure that everyone who is not, you know, of a marginalized community understands kind of like how to, treat that person without microaggressions and to be sensitive. And there's just so much work that needs to be done. Um, But I think a lot of that work is, is needs to be also focused on retention because there's people like we're here, like we exist. 
Um, yeah. So it's like, how yeah. can we take care of the people that we already have in conservation? And one thing that was really funny is that, um, you know, I was asked at a former employment opportunity, basically, do you want to do DEI? And I told the person, I'm like, the best thing that I can do for representation and recruitment and retention is for me to do a good job at my job. And I think that's yeah. a really important thing to remember is that, you know, like yeah. supporting the people who already are, are there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense on a lot of levels. <laughs> and, you know, it's always easier, you know, like this is maybe a gross comparison, but, you know, we talk about this in business where it's always easier to maintain <laughs> a customer <laughs> than it is to get a new one. And it's easier to have people stay in the field and try to maintain them in the field than it is to constantly be trying to recruit people. And, you know, I, yeah, as you said, I mean, there's so many barriers in conservation, um, and pay is a huge one. And, you know, again, actually at the same bonfire I was at last night, you know, there's a couple undergrads who were just finishing up their field season, um, working for one of my lab mates, and, you know, they heard that I was the conservation dog person and they all come over and they're all wide eyed and they're like, how do I get into the conservation dog field? And I was like, OK, like, here are the things that I can tell you, you know, first off, subscribe to this podcast because it's free uh, and we've got 175 episodes. You'll find something useful. Um, but also, you know, so like here are all the things you can do, but also, you know, let's let's sit down and like, OK, get yourself another beer. We're going to sit down and talk about, you know, some of the pros and cons of this field and like, what do you actually want for your yourself um, and your life um, as far as, you know, homeownership and stable income and being in the same community forever? Do you want to have a job where you're home for dinner with your kids consistently? You know, because maybe that's something that can happen within the conservation dog world, but I don't know many people who do it. The vast majority of people in the conservation dog world, we don't have kids. Yeah, um, they're expensive. I know, like... <laughs> But they're very expensive. And it's hard, you know, like <laughs> when I'm spending seven weeks in Kenya and then I'm home for a couple of weeks and then I'm off to Guatemala for two weeks and I'm home for a couple of months and then I'm, you know, and even we're like, we're applying for a project um, to send my, my teammates out on in Wyoming. You know, it doesn't have to be exotic around the world, but if you're working in Wyoming, when your, your partner lives in Montana, you're not home for dinner. You know, it doesn't, matter these states are very I large literally broke up um, with a potential boyfriend because i was like i'm moving to namibia and he was just like is that a line and i'm like no bro <laughs> like it's not no, you know? no. it's like i literally have to go like this is my job um and i do think that like once you pass far enough in your career that you have some stability it's better but you have to kind of get there and that can take a decade it's like do you want to have a decade of potential unrest can you handle that can your family handle that and um and I think it's really good to be frank with people about conservation is a wonderful field. You can wake up every day and know that you're making a difference, um, really live your value system and, and make an impact. But at the same time, it also demands of you in a way that many fields do not. Um, and you yeah. just kind of have to, I always tell, so I always have to kind of, I speak to a lot of undergrads um, and I always have to yeah. kind of dance this careful line right like be really careful about yep. i don't want to be discouraging and have people who would be amazing for this field just get scared and like not do it but i also don't want to tell people it's sunshine and rainbows and it's like perfect all the mm -hmm. time so 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 what i usually tell people is i'm like if you are really into conservation and you dig into it and this is what you want to do with your life literally nothing will stop you nothing should stop you the barriers and the walls are for other people okay just keep going 
right? If you get into this and you're like, oh, this is interesting, but I can see myself do other things, do the other things and do conservation as a side thing. Mm -hmm. Cause like you don't necessarily have to go full on into field work. And also there's many different ways to be a conservationist. So people will be like, oh, but I like, I'm not good at math or I don't want to hike. And I'm just like, you can be a fundraiser. You can be an attorney. You could be a graphic designer. You could be a writer. Mm -hmm. You could be an economist. You could be literally anything or an engineer and also apply that into conservation. Um, Yeah. and we need, we need more of so that, much honestly. More of that. Like, yeah. yeah, there's there, <laughs> there's plenty of people who want to band birds, and that's an amazing job to have for a couple summers. I've actually never had a bird banding yeah. gig, but um, <laughs> yeah, it just feels like the example. Um, yeah, we need more people doing that sort of stuff. And like, I know I I I got my first conservation dog job after um. I had worked in conservation advocacy and politics was not my bag, it turns out. Um, But uh, after that, you know, I learned how to build websites and I was building websites actually for dog trainers and using that as a way to also kind of push forward to some dog welfare things. And then eventually got a job working on the websites and social media and, you know, fundraising emails and those sorts of things for an organization. And then I was able to like take that sidestep into working with the dogs and being in the field. But, you know, realistically, if I really wanted to have a family and a stable career, it actually would have made perfect sense for me to stay full more in that like outreach um, and communications lane and still get all, do all of the amazing impact that I really cared about. And, I was still getting to like go to a bunch of the field sites and meet all of the people and do a lot of stuff. Because if you're on the communications team, you have to do some of the on the ground stuff. So anyway, you know, it's just, you don't have to, uh, yeah, do whatever the hardest version of this is. And also everyone's um, journey is their own. So it's always really interesting because people kind of come up to you. Um, I'm TAing this semester, a bunch of freshmen coming up to uh-huh. me being like, how do I be a conservationist? And I'm like, everyone comes into it differently. Like you're going to come into it differently yeah. depending on what your skill sets are and what your opportunities are. Um, and some of that you can have some control over, you can build up certain skill sets, but also you just have to kind of like not have such a rigid idea of what the path to being, what you're going to do is. My first job mm-hmm. was uh, that U.S. Fish and Wildlife gig. I was on a turn colony. I didn't ban anything. I was doing nest productivity uh, checks while I was being dive bombed by like angry roseate terns. So that was super fun. But like I, I work with carnivores uh-huh. and I've always wanted to work with carnivores. And if I yeah. had turned up my nose at that job, I wouldn't have gotten important mm-hmm. skill sets. Um, so I think it's really important when you're really early to not, again, like avoid being rigid, being like anything I do is going to teach me things, is going to teach me what I don't like, which is also really important and guide mm-hmm. me in a direction. And honestly, because conservation is so competitive, learning other skill sets that aren't strictly field skill sets is crucial. Like if you are good at stats or good at, again, like building websites or graphic design, or you can write a mean grant application, like all of these things will help you. And I think that in some ways um, our education system kind of doesn't really prepare people to be employed once they leave as a conservationist because we're just teaching these very traditional skill sets. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I was offered an REU that ended up, uh, I wasn't able to take, but basically I was offered the REU because I was fluent in Spanish. I could drive stick and I had been 
I'd t- been teaching rock climbing because they had had a student in the past who, um, or an RU student in the past who um, couldn't drive their field vehicles, couldn't communicate with all of their field staff. This was in Panama and um, was too scared to deal with, you know, climbing and rappelling in and out of these caves to get there. It was a vampire bat project in Panama and I'm still sad I didn't get to do it. Um But yeah, like the three skills that stood out to them on my CV were absolutely not the years of, you know, mist netting and electroshocking and like my, you know, honors (laughs) mammalogy class. Like none of that was actually, because there's there's a dime a dozen. Um, You really have to be able to stand out. And yeah. Yeah. You just really have to be able to stand out. And and that's uh, by by also kind of leaning into your personal interests and your personal, like, yeah, like you said, like rock climbing, like, you know, you never know when like a hobby yeah. or a side interest will help you in your career. And I think um, the worst thing that people can do is be too laser focused. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I love that you'd minored in theater. That's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Was that strategic when you were 18? Were you like an unusually prescient yeah, 18 year old? Like I, wow. I, I didn't want to be an actor or anything, but like I really, like I said, I was scared of public speaking. I knew I had to talk to a lot of people to be in conservation. Um, I wanted to be able to communicate my thoughts better, um, and I wanted to get over mm-hmm. kind of like my nerves. And honestly, like it's funny because it's like I maybe draw back on that minor more than I do my STEM stuff because <laughs> it's like yeah. that's what I do. It's like what I do is I talk to people, and sometimes people who are quite angry at me. And it has nothing to do with me. It's mm-hmm. it's what I represent. You know, if I pitch up and I'm wearing like a cheetah on my chest and I'm pitching up to people who lost a bunch of livestock, they come in with assumptions too. And so a lot of my job is actually yeah. de-escalation or um, trying, again, trying to find that commonality. Like, what can we agree on? Okay, we agree on livestock is important. We agree on how do we try to reduce losses. What we don't agree on is if somebody says, oh, I'm going to go shoot this cheetah, I actually, it's actually not my space to say no. And I think that's kind of a misconception of people um, in terms of how conservationists work with uh, HWC is that the worst thing you could say is basically try to tell people what to do with wildlife on their own land. So you have to try to, so one thing that I used to do is like, and it's again, drawing on my improv classes. um, There was this one farmer who was like a total jackal killer. Like he loved, Killing jackals. Um, I had gone up to this farmer who was really keen on killing jackals and told him, no, killing jackals are morally wrong and they're good for the environment. Mm -hmm. What does this guy care? He's losing a bunch of sheep. Like he hates jackals. And honestly, it's kind of justified, right? So what I I told him is, is true. If you shoot out jackals, jackals will breed faster. Jackals will make more jackals. You will have more jackals on your land. And he just looks at me and he goes, I don't want that. <laughs> you know. And that was really the <laughs> yeah. thing that got to him. Um, the other thing is that he really wanted to shoot out this leopard that had been going after his calves. Uh-huh. Again, if I had wagged my finger at him and said, you know, like leopards are important for the environment. What are you doing? Like that would just make a more of an us versus them problem. Um, so what I told yeah. him, which again is based on biological fact, is that okay, we might not like this leopard, but he is your leopard. If you shoot this leopard, you're going to get three leopards fighting for territory, and you're going to lose a lot more livestock. So he actually ended up naming the leopard. It became his leopard. Um, we would give him data that would basically say like, guess what this leopard is doing this week? 
Um, and he became invested in it because it became his leopard. Um, so it's, it's trying to not lecture the people or to come at it from your own position. Because of course, my objective is mm -hmm. to make him not shoot the leopard. But you can't really, you have to have empathy for the fact that people are dealing with real problems. And um, that yeah. has to be as equal in importance to the conservation concern. And I think that's the hard part. I don't think that's always kept as equal in people's minds when they're working at it from a conservation perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the way that you were able to bring in, yeah, all of these biological facts and these things that you know, in order to explain how actually dealing with this, like removing this one animal might not have the result that you're hoping for, because you're creating basically a power vacuum and we all know what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. So you were just in Botswana doing some prep work. And I think that, um, there's, there's some things to learn about how that meeting actually went. So you were not going to Botswana to just go around and, and track down, um, these animals, you know, you weren't, you didn't have your telemetry equipment with you. I assume you had some other stuff with you. So tell us about how, what you were doing there and how they, that relates to, you know, avoiding continuing, uh, the the pattern of kind of parachute conservation and colonialism as it relates to conservation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so as someone who has some African ancestry but is not from Africa, I have to be very mindful of that, right? My positionality is I'm coming from the West, right? And um, in order yeah. to be ethical and sustainable, one thing that I always do, no matter where I work, is I do not do anything unless I have the on, I have an on-the-ground affiliate who's been there for a decade or more. Ideally, it is staffed full of people in positions of power from that country. Ideally, it's run by a person from that country, um, but who is a strong affiliate who is based in communities that they've worked with for at least a decade. And the reason for that is, is, is multifaceted. Um, trying to get any work done in any kind of community-based conservation if they don't know you is basically almost impossible. Um, they are rightfully not going to you know, care about the work that you're doing because they, they literally don't know you. And it takes a long time to create those relationships and you have to be quite patient. And even if you have the on-the-ground affiliates, you have to be quite patient. There's a lot of meeting people. You're sitting down you know, like at their homesteads and you're just talking to them and you're getting to know them as human beings. Um, you can't speed through that process. A lot of researchers try to turbo through that process so they can just put some camera traps up, but like you, you can't, you really have to create those relationships. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also kind of, again, the humility factor, right. Of like, you go into a community with your on-ground affiliate, you get introduced, you meet people, but also they might tell you that the problem that you think is the problem is, is not the problem. Or they might say, Oh, but it's over yeah. here. Um, or there might be concerns. And I think like a big, a big thing that I was thinking about is I'm doing a before after control impact design. So just describing what that is, that basically means that I have an experimental livestock enclosure and a control livestock enclosure. So the experimental livestock enclosure has like a deterrent, like say a flashing light system and the control does not. Um, one thing that uh -huh. when I was thinking about this is the control farmers are losing livestock. How do you equitably choose who would be a control farmer that could be very unethical, which is why there aren't a lot of like before yeah. after control impact designs. So what a solution that mm -hmm. the NGO and I came up with is that at the end of the project, we actually will donate the deterrent that we determined worked the best to those control farmers. So they have something that will then help them yeah. with their losses at the end of the study period, which isn't very long, it's about six months. Um, 
But also oh, God, the no. idea that we can keep them updated. We'll tell them about what's happening with their neighbors. They have something to look forward to and something that they can be invested in. They can ask questions about these methodologies mm-hmm. and it can be equitable and ethical. Um, and that was something that before I even put anything up, that was something that I'm thinking about is how do I avoid causing unintentional harm by trying to yeah. um, which is why it's so important to have these affiliates. Cause I said like, what's a good way to do this? What's a good way to not make things tense in the community or. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if, um, you know, farmer a has a bunch of livestock that he loses overnight, and they're in, you know, the control group. Yeah, it, it seems like, especially in small communities or areas where tensions are high, and I don't know much about Botswana kind of socioeconomically or climactically right now, but when we were in Kenya, you know, they were at the tail end of a drought that my understanding is has finally more or less yeah. broken. Um, but, you know, tensions and desperation was just running so high that you wouldn't want to do anything that could cause you know, strife within the community as well. And also, you know, again, as we were talking about with these livestock losses, like this is a very, very real, huge socioeconomic factor for these people. They're not just, you know, it's not like, oh, they're backyard chickens and they lost one to a fox, which, you know, is still a bummer. I've been through it, but, you know, my family wasn't going to not eat when our chickens got Yeah, munched. there's also cultural factors of livestock being important for social standing. It's not even just things like economic. Um, And I think it's a mistake to kind of think of things just in terms of economic things. You know, there's also also the intangible costs, the fear of when is it going to happen? I don't know when it's going to happen. How bad is it going to be? And the stress kind of around the idea that it could happen at any time. You know, it's like, so there, and there's a whole lack of control thing and, and people react more strongly to things that are outside of their control. That's just human nature. Um, so yeah, so I think a lot of this is, um, it's very complex and having that on-ground affiliate not only allows you to be ethical, it also allows you to be sustainable. So what I'm doing is my project has been co-designed with these people. So I have my committee, Uh but I also am co-designing it with this NGO and it's fitting within the mosaic of things that they're already doing. And it will also be presented at these working forums of all of the big carnivore NGOs in Botswana, where we can say, okay, this worked well here, this worked well here, this worked well here. And then that becomes part of that conversation that can be moved forward on grounds long after my PhD. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did you get connected with um, with this NGO and with these groups? Because it seems like that's, you know, these on-the-ground affiliates is so important, but how do you, how do you find them? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, well, the cool thing is that once you're in carnivore conservation, you literally can throw a rock and you'll hit, like, seven of the people who work on your same species. We all know each other, um, at least of each other. Yeah. Um, but in terms of getting connected, when I was first starting out, I would dry email people. So when I was when I created the environmental video game, I created um, Operation Ferdinand, where that was just literally just my friend and me, who's a software engineer working together on this one project. I dry emailed people that I knew of, but we had never met. Um, so I do think that you can broach that. Um, I create this connection with these guys because CCF, uh, Cheetah Conservation Fund, uh, advise Cheetah Conservation Botswana in its early days, and they had that connection. Mm-hmm. But I actually didn't even use that connection to really meet them. I knew of them through that. So, but I was making a a Fulbright application, uh, which I received, but then COVID Uh blew up, which is unfortunate. 
Um, but I, I was applying <laughs> yeah. for Fulbright and then I just, I dry emailed Rebecca Klein, who is the CEO of um, Cheetah Conservation Botswana and just said, okay, here's what I bring to the table. This is what I'm thinking. How can this be useful for you? Let's, let's design it together. And I did it far enough in advance that like we literally designed the project together. Um, and I think that yeah. that's key. Um, kind of a two-parter thing of like not telling people what you're going to do, doing it with them, but also um, being very clear about what benefits are you bringing to them? Why should they want to work with you? Because it costs yeah. them time and it costs them energy and, and sometimes even funding, right? So um, yeah. I now have had relationships with CCB for three years. Um, with a very strong, uh-huh. wonderful working relationship. And um, Good. but that foundation has been crucial for my PhD. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, sounds similar to the project that I'm hoping to get off the ground in El Salvador. I read one paper that totally captured my imagination. Uh, well, first, first I fell in love with the country and a boy there. Um, and then I literally like went into Google Scholar and typed El Salvador conservation, I think. <laughs> um found a paper that said that um, contrary to popular belief, uh, pumas are not extinct in El Salvador. Um, And it was the first photographic evidence that they're not extinct. Um, And that had just come out in 2020. Um, So I emailed the the lead author and was like, hey, this is amazing. What have you guys been doing since? Like, what's going on? I'm in the country. I've got scat dogs. Like, how could we work together? What does this look like? You know, and we're still working on what that's going to look like, but being able to, you know, really just come at it from this like place of curiosity and excitement. Um, You know, they were excited to get to work with us and uh, pretty excited that we've got dogs to bring to the table, which is a nice thing that kind of comes with our line of work. And then, you know, for me as well, his English, um, Francisco's English is pretty good. Um, but my Spanish is a lot better. And that's just, that's something we've talked about on past episodes about international work in particular is, you know, whether, whether uh, you just get to the place where you can do some niceties or if you can work in places that you're really able to converse in the native language. That's really yep. helpful. I'm nice at Swana right now and it is a challenge, um, yeah. but it's so important for relationships, even if you're not fluent to show that you're putting in effort yeah. um, to show that you care enough to be able to use the right honorifics which is really important, yeah. um, especially in community work, um, making sure that, you know, you're being respectful and that you're respecting kind of like how people would prefer to be addressed and what's the appropriate way to address people, especially um, in cultures where where there's a huge age component, right? Uh, being respectful. Yeah. And it's interesting, Catapost, because most of the people at Catapost are actually elderly or older. Um, so for me, it's mm-hmm. like not only coming as an outsider, but like as a, as a younger person, like how do I express respect yeah. um, for these people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and that was something we ran into. It was funny. Um, so in El Salvador, if you enter a restaurant um, or anywhere where people are eating, you say provecho to like every person. Um, so like bon appetit or something to every person. And Danielle and I um, were traveling to Guatemala and he noticed immediately that people didn't do that um, just across the border, you know, and these are countries the size of states. Um, and he was like, oh my God, these Guatemalans, like they're so rude. And he was, you know, all, had his panties all in a bunch over it. And then we realized, you know, a couple days later that 
what you do in Guatemala is as you stand up to leave, you announce provecho to the entire restaurant and to the chef. At, yeah, it just, it just happens after. <laughs> it was one of those little things where it's like, gosh, even as you're traveling through these like teeny tiny countries and even being fluent in the language, there's still just these like little things where it would be so easy for someone to think that I'm being rude because I send my compliments to the chef and wish everyone a good meal at the wrong time. Um, yeah. And I have not yet found any good books that actually get into that level of nuance or like consistent guides that get into that level of nuance. I do think that's the sort of thing that like, just do your best to be polite and do the best you can. And hopefully someone will like correct you um, or guide you at some point and at least understand your intention. Yeah, and also understand that like different countries. So the good thing about me being Brazilian is actually I... I draw a lot on Brazil because Brazil is very similar to many African countries where it's relationships first. Mm -hmm. So it's all about where, like, who do you know and creating those relationships and that relationships are really important. Um, you know, we always joke about Brazil time, you know, outside of Sao Paulo, it's like, <laughs> yeah. but it's really funny in Brazil. So like, there's this thing that people do and it's a thing that I've seen in other places too, which is amazing where um, you kind of do this little parade of, of visiting people. And everyone has a perfect idea of how long this visit is supposed to last. It's always exactly around an hour and they can like just sense it. Like nobody looks at the watch, like they just know. And you go uh, to important people in the community, which are often elderly people. And you sit down and they, you have a chat with them and they chat with you and you just talk to them. And it's kind of creating those important bonds. And if you try to get out of that early or you try to skip somebody, like people will be straight up offended. Um, when I was a little yeah. kid, I was always like, mom, like, dad, I don't want to like go talk to like, don't know whoever, like we just talked to like, seven of them. He's like, no, like, she will know that we didn't sit with her and she will be upset. And, um, so it's those keeping those relationships alive is really important. And it's less of a time conscious thing. Like I think as Americans, we're always about like, need to be efficient, need to be on time, but you're investing mm -hmm. in those relationships. Um, and it's really important to, to take that time and again, get to know people as human beings and to let them know that like, you're not just doing this for your PhD, you're doing this out of genuine concern for the situation and trying to help. Um, and that's really important, but I, it's really funny how like, I find myself kind of drawing from this more collectivist culture as a Brazilian in my yeah. field work where I'm just like, ah, it's like, it's, it's like going to visit the donuts, you know, like we're gonna go just sit down yeah, and we'll have yeah. a chat. And, um, and I think that's really helped me connect with people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's something where I can see, again, these on-the-ground affiliates and really having the humility and the patience to let them take the lead and not having your own agenda is so, so important. Because again, like, I don't know if I had picked up a book on Central American manners, if it would have explained to me that in El Salvador, Provecho comes first and Guatemala it comes at the end. But just, you know, being able to watch people and being really, really curious about that and, you know, trying not to be the one who's ending every conversation. Like, that's such a good point as, you know, Americans, you know, for, yeah, I, if I find myself always being the one who's wrapping up conversations, that's probably a sign that I'm doing some amount of cultural faux pas. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I think um, if I had to give advice to anyone who wants to be a conservationist, they're like, what do I need to know? What should I do? Um, I'd say the best tool in your toolbox is empathy before anything yeah. else. It's um, having the ability to set aside your preconceptions and really connect with other humans because you will be working with people. I don't care if you're like, <laughs> whatever you're working yep. on, there will be people you'll be working with them. Um, and being able to 
generally care about what their opinions are, um, even if they might be quite different from yours. Because that's another thing that like I've had to learn, which is very hard, is that the guy who wants to shoot the leopard is not objectively wrong. It is a point of view, just like my point of view of not wanting him to shoot the leopard is objectively wrong. And it's hard because it's like I've been in situations where a farmer would call me and they'd be like, if you don't get here in 10 minutes, I'm going to shoot this cat. And then I show up and they have a cheetah skin for me. Right. And you feel upset. Right. Like you can't help it. But you have to kind of put that aside and be like, okay, this is the situation. This is how I feel about that. How can I improve this going forward? Um, and at the same time, even at your most upset, trying to understand. Um, and I think that that is, is really yeah. important because in, in the kind of conflict world, human wildlife conflict is a very a loaded term. Um, I, I use yeah. it because it's just what's used, but it's not my favorite term because yeah. really every human wildlife conflict is human human conflict or it's human wildlife is conflict about wildlife or conflict with other yeah. people. And the thing that I think is really hard for conservationists to learn is that a lot of the time, the conflict is with us as conservationists. Mm -hmm. So we have to just kind of admit that there is kind of like this loadedness to being a conservationist and maybe past things that have Mm -hmm. happened and you're not coming in a blank slate. You're coming into a situation where they may have had bad interactions with conservationists in the past. Um, So it's trying to not make tensions worse and also hopefully through your relationship with them, improve their idea of what conservationists can be. Um, so it's a lot of responsibility. Um, and mm-hmm. none of this is about science, you know, like we're scientists, but but 90% of the work is completely unrelated to that. Um, and I think that's a hard thing to explain to people yeah. who are looking to, to be a scientist. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great point to wrap up on. And, you know, I know we didn't really touch on dogs as well, but I think we've done this in the past. But, you know, it's also it's a whole other level when you're the person showing up in another culture and, you know, people may or may not be afraid of your working dog. They may or may not understand why they're there. Um, They may be worried about that dog interacting with their livestock. Um, You know, there's a lot of stuff that just the dogs just add a whole other extra level but then in a lot of cases they can also be a total superpower because in cultures where dogs are um viewed you know similarly to how they're viewed in North America which are not all cultures but in places where that is you know they really break down barriers and people get excited and you know people you've got this you you've got your own kind of charismatic megafauna right at your side that can really help people get excited that was definitely when i was doing aquatic invasive species work in Yellowstone, you know, people are not stoked to have you stop their boat and inspect their boat really carefully. But when you explain that the dogs are a a lot faster, so this is much better for you, I promise you're going to get out and go fishing very soon. And B, you know, like, they're just happy. Like a lot of times the kids are the ones that are the fussiest and the kids are going to be excited to see the dog and you can use the dogs for the outreach as well. Um, but being cognizant again, that that's not always going to be the case. Niffler, my younger dog, when we were in El Salvador, I can't tell you how many times I, you know, people, you know, they pull their kids away and they, they put themselves in between the, the dog and the kid. And, you know, people will say, Oh my God, that's a wolf. (laughs) You know, and he's, he's a border collie. He's got pointy ears and he's gray. So, you know, to me, I'm like, what are you talking about? But anyway, I don't need to go down a huge rabbit hole with that line of thinking. Um, So Chief information about does work with dogs. They do livestock guardian dog program. Uh Um, Their program is 
one of the most culturally sensitive and interesting programs I've ever seen because they're not they're not like taking the big Anatolians from Turkey. They're actually training uh-huh. local dogs. They're called swan dogs. They're basically oh, cool. like street dogs or like the random dogs that get bred. Some of them like look like little dachshunds. Some of them are huge. Like they're just all over the place. <laughs> um, but yeah. they work and they tested them and they are 80% effective at reducing losses in the field, um, which is about Amazing. the same as an Anatolian. And they live a lot longer uh-huh. because they're adapted to the environment. They're healthier. They're, they can live on scraps. Like you don't have to feed them anything special. And they already are dogs that everyone's familiar with. Um, because they're just yeah. around. Um, so they have this amazing thing where they'll just buy these random dogs from like, there's local farmers that like, you know, their dog, they yeah. have dogs. Got yeah. a litter. And then yeah. they'll just put the dogs in um, with the goats and the dogs will learn that the goat is their fan, the goats are their family. And sometimes they're often with an older dog that will teach them. And I've watched, I mean, I always joke that it's goat o'clock because we'll be working in the office and then the livestock guardian dogs like completely autonomously will just come through and they'll come through and they'll lead their herds through. Um, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, there's like gift and like there's whatever. And then like there's one that like I swear looks like a dachshund had like with a with a German shepherd. He's the weirdest looking dog, but he's just like trying his little legs. And it's just Do you have photos yeah, of him? Send it. <laughs> we he's can share. Okay, um, thank you. We, really do, we do need that. And, like, these tiny little legs. and he's just kind of trying. Oh. I'm like, oh, baby oh boy, I don't know what's up with you. But he uh, but yeah, they're doing their job. And um, but the fact that it it is these local dogs Um it's brilliant. That's amazing. That cool? yeah. yeah. So definitely, definitely check out Cheetah Conservation Brought Swanda's Livestock Gardening Program because after years of being around LGD programs, um, I've been, you know, I hung out with one of the flagships. Um, they're all really cool. Yeah. But but this is a specifically really cool take because it's taking those those local animals and putting them to use. I was not aware of that program and that there are people using these local dogs. And we get people ask that occasionally on the detection dog side of things. And I think where we've kind of come down on it so far has been we just haven't had a long-term enough project on the ground where it makes sense to be looking for and screening the local dogs. Although it's totally possible. Like Christine Figner, who we've had on the show before, she or no, we haven't had on the show. She's in our class. Um, she works with sea turtles in Costa Rica. And she, her dog, um, her sea turtle nest detection dog is a local dog. Cool. Um, but yeah, you do kind of have to be on the ground for long enough that you can look for the right dog for this line of work and then train the dog and then do the field work. And for us and the model that we're in, that's, that doesn't work for us right now. Um, but you know, even when, you know, you and I have that shared connection with action for cheetahs in Kenya, you know, their, their dog Maddie Maddie. is just, he's a local. Yeah. We love (laughs) Maddie. He's just a, you know, he's a local mixed dog. Um, He's, he's a, a very good, good boy. A collie yeah. mixed with a Roddy or something. I have no idea what he is, yep. but yeah, he's cute. <laughs> that's that's what they've said. Yeah. Um, but you know, and when we were talking about coming there, and you know, they were talking about, oh, we might need another dog, and we were like, okay, do you want us to try to screen a dog and train a dog and then bring it over with us? You know, and they partially it wasn't the right time, but partially they were also like, you know, honestly, the a lot of the diseases here, um, we just have better like literal survivability with dogs that are born and raised here, Um, like trypsinomiasis and those sorts of things. Like the dogs that come from North America and um, Western Europe just don't have the same, uh, (laughs) they're not made of the same stuff anymore. In the extreme environments Um, of the Kalahari, it's like you need dogs that will be able to be adapted to them. They're okay with like surviving in that really harsh environment. Um, Yeah, no, for sure. So cool. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, all right. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? I know we said we were wrapping up on the empathy point and then we just went down another rabbit hole. So sorry. Home, but... <laughs> it's cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what I would just, um, for people who are, Who's, who's your target audience? I actually should ask that. Are there people who like are <laughs> yeah. conservationists or who are interested in conservation or? We've got a pretty solid mix in our listeners between dog people who want to work in conservation and conservation people who want to work with dogs. But most of them are early career, probably 25 to 35 women would be like our average okay. person. Um, so they're, they're already they're on the conservation train. I don't have to tell people that their conservation is important. Um, so I think, yeah, I think like yeah. the the best um, advice that I could give is that again, if if you want to be in conservation, literally, and this is what I had to tell myself every single day for like five years straight, especially in that very early period right after undergrad, the obstacles are for other people. They're to stop other yep. people. <laughs> so don't let anything discourage you from going down that path. Um, but also to make sure that you take care of yourself as a person. Um, I think it's really easy as a conservationist to forget to to be a whole person, to, again, like literally touch grass for fun, not for work, like just touch grass. Um, and yeah, to yeah. make sure that that you also, while you want to be focused, while you want to be relentless, while you don't want to give up, um, you know, protect your mental health and keep your relationships. And it's easier said than done. But some of the best things that I've learned is that you can't give so much of yourself to your work that you forget how to be a human. Um, make sure that you keep yeah. that balance and then you'll be an even better conservationist. Yeah, like, absolutely. Because like, conservationist, um, right? <laughs> yeah, I've got, I was just thinking the same thing. Um, yeah, especially as, you know, you both of us are very overwhelmed and stressed out right yeah. now. <laughs> like you know I've got my little candle going and I'm gonna go on a run later and I took a stress nap and you know we gotta we gotta yeah, do the thing if you want to find me um I am on Twitter at, yes. at Fleury F-L-E-U-R-Y G is in golf S is in Sam at uh on Twitter um I am less active than that right now I've actually moved mostly to Instagram um my Instagram handle is mm-hmm. called be curious and I will be posting more content um as I continue to work on this project so please do reach out and um, I'm sure that there will be a link for my website somewhere. Um, but yes, yeah, if definitely. people have any um, wishes to reach out, just definitely, definitely contact me there. Yeah. And where can people get your video game? My video game. I will send a link through. Um, so it's it's a little Great. it's a little rusty right now because there's been a lot of operating changes, um, operating system changes mm-hmm. since we made it. Um, but I can send you a link for PCs. We'd love that. Yeah. All right. So, and as always, people can find those in the show notes. Um, so don't worry about trying to write anything down if you are driving on the freeway. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find the show notes, donate to canine conservationists, join our Patreon, or sign up for our conservation detection dog handler course, all at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. <laughs>